I think working and breaking news, you have to eventually accept and come to the understanding that chaos is constant and that it is a feature and not a bug. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Empowered Women's Podcast. I'm your host, Janelle Gardner, VP of Talent here at WBD. And today we have a fascinating topic for you. We dive into the world of building tech for breaking news with two of our leads from the CNN team, Vanessa Terrell and Apasna Gotham. Guys, I'm so excited to dive into today's topic. Let's start by having you introduce yourselves. Thank you, Janelle. Yes, I will do that. My name is Upasna Gotham. I am a senior product manager on the digital news platform team at CNN. And I've been here for a little, I think about three and a half years. And prior to that, I was working also in, in tech, mostly in search strategy and architecture for about a decade um, before I moved into product, which I'm sure we'll talk more about later. Fantastic. Vanessa? Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Vanessa Terrell. I'm a senior staff product designer on the digital news platforms and services team with Paz. And I've been at CNN for about the same, about three and a half, four years. Um, I've worked everywhere from the video side, um, but always with internal workflows. And before that, I was at Home Depot um, working in enterprise design and visual design backgrounds. So I'm sure we'll get into that as well. Awesome. All right. We always like to kick off by making the content relevant from a user experience perspective. So I would love to know how the work that you guys do shows up on screen. How does that impact my journey as a consumer? Yeah, I mean, I think the tool that we're building specifically is enabling those experiences on the front end. So we're working really closely with those front end teams to understand how they want that content presented. They're working with editorial. They're also understanding the consumer experience and doing a lot of research to make informed decisions there. So once we have those requirements, we figure out how to make them happen on the um, internal side. So, you know, it kind of starts, it's end to end. We, we have to care about every step of the user experience and user journey, um, both from our internal users too all the way to the end. I think that captures it really well. And I think one thing we'd like to kind of set the stage for is like our product is very unique because it's an entire platform as opposed to kind of like a singular product. So when you think about our product, the core platform, also known as Stellar, it's our content management platform at CNN Digital, and that powers the website, the mobile app, the experiences, the tools, the features that are built in there and our customers are our journalists. So that in itself is a very unique way to work is that our users are our CNN journalists. Can you tell us a little bit more about what a content management system is for those of us who are less technical? Totally. In a non-technical terminology, and when you think about it from an editorial or journalistic standpoint, content management system allows you to easily manage and update your website's content or your app's content without relying on lots of complex or external processes, um, uh, processes, features, or technical skills. So when we think about the content management system for CNN, it allows our journalists to create, manage, publish, and distribute all of CNN's content, whether that's an article or a photo or a video um, to the website and out to the world. And so obviously the decision to update, change that product is a huge one. What prompted the decision? I think one of the most obvious reasons was, you know, we were working within a legacy tech stack with over 10 years of tech debt. It was very limiting and challenging for our users to actually use this as a tool. And we weren't able to really make a lot of updates. And I think now that we have this web-based tool and can do what our users need, we have a lot more room for opportunity and flexibility. So we don't have to force our users to hack workflows together anymore. The tool is built exactly for what they need it for, rather than them changing how they work for the tool. And also, uh, Vanessa mentioned that it used to be an app-based system and we moved to a web-based one. So when it was in that app-based system, you know, it really was limiting as far as the amount of features we and tools we could update. It was much more cumbersome to make those updates. There was also layers of external systems. And we also had a really heavy reliance on external parties and, and vendors. So we wanted to limit 
or, or, or reduce all of that. And then another big piece is, you know, our, our editors are were forced to work in a lot of confinements. Doing very simple tasks took them a really long time. Um, and sometimes they would have to, you know, again, rely on those external tools to fulfill this very simple task. Um, and so like Vanessa mentioned, and I'll reiterate is we wanted to eliminate all these hacks and like external workflows and bring everything into the um, internal workflow within the platform. And that also has allowed us to like unlock a lot of opportunities. And you'll probably hear us talk about speed and time a lot. Vanessa and I specifically work on the programming workflows for Stellar. And so that is editors who program content on the section fronts and the homepage. So, you know, we have editors and journalists who write content, and then we have editors who program that content and place that content on different pages, like the homepage, like the politics landing page, like the health and entertainment landing pages. So their workflows are a little bit more unique and time is of the essence when it comes to their workflows. And one of our goals was to reduce the amount of time they're spending actually executing those workflows. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition period? Everything from the timeline, from inception to implementation, user comfortability, risks, all of those different layers that go into it. I think we could talk about that for like days um, from, from conception. Um, so this, this started about three, three and a half years ago. I mean, we kicked off this project right around the time we all, we started here. So in the beginning, we dedicated a lot of time to deeply understanding our users' needs and building a strong partnership with our editorial stakeholders and users. I think that was step one. We wanted to make sure that they felt like they were partners in this process and that they are not there to just give us feedback, but they're actually helping us build this and test this as we go through and move them all over, right? Like this is a tool that affects their day-to-day -day life um, and it will completely change the way that they work in their day-to-day. -day. So we wanted to make sure that we built that trust and respect up front. And that takes time because our user base is expansive, it's global, and we dedicated a lot of time to that. So I think um, that was step one, is making sure that we build those strong relationships early on and build that trust and respect. Vanessa, if you want to, you could probably dive into like the user experience and testing and all the research we did. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges and maybe risk, um, you know, as we get to know everybody, we were building that trust. We're starting to understand what their day to day looks like. I mean, we're building tools that help them complete their jobs, complete tasks. We want to understand what is driving them at their job, and so it's not only just you know where we promise to build this thing for you. We also promise to hear you and amplify your voice in any way that we can to our engineers, our other partners, our other stakeholders, other teams included. So I think that was challenging, but I think we've done a pretty great job representing the things we hear the most. That's probably um, the only way we can get by. But yeah, it's been great. I think working with your users who are also your coworkers is such a privilege, I think, because I mean, they're accessible, they're there for, you know, they're not there at all hours of the night, unfortunately, but they're there for us. We, we, we have questions and they're eager to give us answers. And like Paz said, build the product with us, which is so, it's really fun that way. I was just going to add just some tactical color to that too, is like how how did we actually do that, right? And then because our user base was so expansive and around the world, talking like hundreds of editors, we made sure to create a really clear order of operations when it came to the way we trained, tested, and onboarded everybody. And we can certainly get into that in a little more detail, but I think like having these like very definitive checkpoints across such a large span of time, right? Like three years is a long time. And it took us that long because of the sheer volume of people we had to work with and the vast just expansiveness of the platform. And Vanessa mentioned earlier, like we have to take into consideration these very nuanced workflows. Politics has very different needs than the homepage, than does entertainment, than does the opinions team. And so, you know, we created this order of operations that allowed us to approach onboarding in a very phased way, team by team, 
deeply understanding each team's need and then taking them through this process of training, user testing, breaking news dress rehearsals. We opened up office hours so we could create um, a, you know, a two-way line of communication with editorial and product and training materials with our CNN tech training team. So a very robust but concrete process to put some order to the chaos. How did you balance the need for a bespoke product for the various teams, but then also needing to build at scale? What were some of the filters that you used? It's a great question. I mean, I think we're constantly hearing needs from every team. And I think one of the things that makes our team work so well on the programming side is we're engineering product and design, always synthesizing those together. So you know, what might be beneficial to another team, we try to understand how that could scale. If it can't, is it unique to this team? And is that okay for our product? And Stellar is very flexible. So we're able to create unique workflows for our unique users needs. Of course, we've had to make sacrifices at this stage of the product. It's still in its very early stages. But I think at some point, we would love to meet these the needs of every single user and every single stakeholder. But I think that they've come to see that when we're able to scale something, it actually works better for them than it might be this unique workflow because there's a lot of benefits to that. You know, we can optimize it more easily. So I think it's a give and a take, but, you know, I think we're, we're definitely capturing what we need to right now, but I think there's also a lot of unique nuances that we'll probably build into the product one day when we have to. <laughs> and another part of understanding those needs and those like unique features that editorial might be requesting as well is editorial is speaking and giving us that feedback in their language, right? And I think it's also our job, it has been our job to translate what exactly is it that they need? Because mm -hmm. they might say, I need to be able to do this and hear and, and, and give us a solution, but they don't understand the depth and breadth of solutions we already have available. So like, that's what, you know, the three of us, Vanessa, I, and our tech lead would go back and assess and analyze is, okay, hold on. We don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We have this that works. We can make it work for this need also. So I think for, for a product manager, especially, and for user experience design, you know, translating the needs of the user and understanding what the core problem is um, that we're trying to solve for is something we continuously go back to. If there's five different editors asking for five different things. Sometimes three of them are actually asking for the exact same thing. And how do you manage the message in the instances where you're not moving forward with something that a particular team might need? How do you, how, how do you manage that message specific audience? So you're referring to like pushing back or saying, saying, yeah. no. I think it's, this goes back to building that trust and respect with our editorial partners and users very, very early on. We took that time to build that partnership so that when the time came as we got closer to launch or we were user testing different features or they say they want something and we say we can't prioritize it right now they understand because they've had they've been along for the ride for so long they understand how we work we understand how they work but that's why i think it's so important to set up and establish that baseline of communication up front so that when you get deep into it, there is not friction in the relationships or in the communication. And it's shockingly easy for us to say no, and they understand. And it's all because of that, right? And then there's also times where we're we're like, oh, wow, we totally missed that. Like we need, we absolutely should prioritize it. And I think that comes with, again, deeply understanding what their needs are and having established that line of communication and that relationship. I'm curious to know, we, we obviously have different levels of experience on this call from those just starting in the product field to wanting to get into product versus um, those super experienced. Have you, in terms of that communication, managing the message, influencing your stakeholders, what goes into that preparation element of it so that, like you said, by the time you're pushing back on something, they are so comfortable with what you're trying to deliver, the skill that you have developed in being able to do that over time. Can you talk a little bit about how that's evolved during your time as a PM? I think working and breaking news, you have to eventually accept and come to the understanding that 
chaos is constant and that it is a feature and not a bug. And that in itself will help alleviate a lot of friction, stress, and keep you sane throughout the process because this, and, and it actually, I, it kind of really hit me when, when my, when my boss said this to me a few months ago, like CNN is one of the most highly trafficked pages on the entire internet, right? Like we have so many eyes on the website, on our content that, and, and it's breaking news. I mean, it, the, the nature of breaking news itself is chaotic. So I think working in tech as a product manager is very, very different than working in tech as a product manager in news, especially breaking news. So first and foremost, like just understanding and accepting that this is the way things are is really, really important. And then I think from there, like the way communication has been really effective and helpful for me is you know, going in with just a sense of empathy um, and compassion and understanding that we have users in, you know, Hong Kong and London and the United States, and they're covering very different things and they all have different ways of talking about things. So asking a lot of smart questions, I think, high quality questions when we're doing things like user testing is a really important form of communication. I think when we think of effective communication as a product manager, a lot of times people think you need to be extremely articulate or be amazing at storytelling. I personally don't think either of those things are my strong suit, but I ask a lot of questions when it comes time to talk to our users and get really high value knowledge from them. And I think that is a really important part of also establishing that relationship with them is it shows you're invested in that, right? If you're asking those high quality questions. And then the other third thing is smart repetition is what I like to call it. I think we hear about, you should over-communicate a lot, right? Especially in the era that we are in now of hybrid remote work. Vanessa and I both work remotely. I work completely remotely. Like I don't even go into the office because I live in Austin. So that smart repetition is basically different from over-communicating because it is understanding that people need to hear and see things in different ways and multiple ways in order for it to stick. And so one Slack message isn't going to do it sometimes. One email isn't going to do it sometimes. We've got lots of different modes of communication that we use throughout our process of launching the CNN homepage and building Stellar, which was, you know, we had group slacks with like our hundred editors, right? We had our newsletter. We had what we call demo days where we brought in everyone from editorial and say, Hey, we're going to show and tell different features that we've been working on. So again, smart repetition of basically the same stuff over and over again in a lot of different ways. Can you say a little bit more about high quality questions without going too much into the intricacies of the product, but just at a very high level? What might that look like versus what a question that's not getting you to the meat of things might look like? I think the best way to sum it up, and I, Vanessa is very, very, very good at asking questions. I actually learned a lot of how to ask smart questions by observing her, is asking why a lot. Why are you doing it this way? Why is this here? Why does this work the way it does? You know, like really digging into historical context, the way things have been because a lot of this stuff and a lot of the features and workflows in our legacy staff, for example, have been around for 10 years. And it's a habit that's been built for a lot of our editors and our users, right? And so I learned from watching Vanessa, you know, ask a lot of questions during like user testing of why, why this, why that, how was it built like this? Why was it built like this? I always like joke in those, in those conversations. And I'm like, how can I be the most nosy? <laughs> you know, I want to know everything. I want to know what their desk looks like, what they're thinking of when they're working how many screens do they have? And in a newsroom, I mean, we're remote more than we were before now, but their workspace can be chaotic. They can have a lot of different browser tabs open, a lot of the different windows. And the CMS is just one part of their day you know, it's a big part. So, you know, trying to just, yeah, be as nosy as possible. What, what, what have you not told me here? I'm interested. I think being curious and having this curiosity, I mean, just what are, what there's, there's always something interesting that you can pull out of a conversation. And also I think this is a simple one, but just leaving some pauses and not, you know, just letting folks speak to you and letting them fill that interview with, their stream of consciousness, whatever they're thinking of. And you learn a lot that way too. And did you find that 
obviously you're in an environment where time is of the essence. There's a lot going on. It's chaotic. You're asking a lot of questions. How do you do that in a way that doesn't become frustrating or antagonistic? Is there a skill in that? Is it the setup of the questions? Yeah, I think one of my favorite ways to phrase a question when you don't want to feel in, in whatever way, you don't want to come off um, aggressive is, did you expect that? What did you expect? Or, you know, tell me more about that. I think just trying to pull more out of that. I think the asking what a user expects out of a product is an extremely big question because it could be anything. And if you're testing just a feature, it could be a small interaction that you might learn and figure out that is invalidated or is validated. It could be the entire product itself. So those are some pretty disarming ways to, I think, phrase questions. Also framing an interview with there's no wrong answers. We always reiterate that over and over again. This is not a test for you. It's a test for us. <laughs> so, you know, just kind of creating kind of a safe space that way where anything that you say goes. So I always think that this quote from Henry Ford, it, it, where he, before he, I think he started like the Model T factory he said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? And again, that I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier of anticipating user needs by asking those high quality questions and being curious and poking deep and being nosy and translating that to something more sustainable and scalable and powerful as well. So I, I think that is like a, a mindset kind of to, to cultivate as, as you're coming into product, you know, if, that, if you're early career or coming in um, from a different field is, you know, tapping into your curiosity and letting that guide your questioning. Fantastic. Can you talk to us a little bit about the timeline and how that was broken up from research to testing to implementation? Yeah. So one thing we took the time to do up front because we knew that this is going to be a beast of a project, right? We have several teams, hundreds of editors, global time zones, and this massive platform that we need to bring everyone onto after they've already been working on the legacy one for a decade. So I mentioned earlier that we created this kind of order of operations. The first thing we did though, is we took all of our teams that we knew that need to be onboarded. So we've got politics, health, entertainment, opinion, sports. We've got our homepage team. We've got affiliate news programming teams. Like anyone who is going to touch programming as a team, we took them and we ordered them from low risk to high risk. We wanted to start with the lowest risk team. And that was a combination of evaluating a few different factors like revenue, visibility, traffic on those pages. And a combination of those factors enabled us to create a you know, stack rank of who and how we're going to prioritize onboarding. So that was step one. Then from there, we took our first team and we brought them in and we did a training class. This is like the prerequisite to all of onboarding and our entire onboarding process as we worked with our CNN tech training team, create a curriculum, which was a training class and training materials that covers all of the workflows, features, and tools that we had worked on. It's like a stellar 101 class is what we call it. So that was the first step. Everyone needs to just come in and take this class and understand the lay of the land and also become familiar with the terminology because it was a lot different than what they were used to. A lot of the functions and the workflows were similar, but how we named them were pretty different. So this allowed them to get a really good grasp of that. Then after they took the training class, we moved them into what we called user research or testing sessions where Vanessa and I would facilitate more deep dive sessions with that dedicated group. So mentioned before, you know, politics, very different than the health team, right? Some teams need more time than the others. Some are bigger, some are smaller, some are more complex workflows, some have greater needs. So once we got into that, we were really able to dive deep with them and understand if what we had built works for them. And then that's where we really get got into a lot of like the question and like and asking a lot of questions. Vanessa, I don't know if you want, if you want to add anything to that part. So that was like totally your jam. <laughs> no, that that covered it. I know it was a long process. I mean, there were a lot of late nights. I think we were we were excited to meet with you know the Hong Kong team and the London team and hear how they work differently. And I, I mean, I think even now there's still so much 
to learn. You know, we've been focusing on the homepage most recently, but I feel like each one of these teams could have their own product. <laughs> so yeah, no, you covered it really well. After they had gone through two, three, four, sometimes up to six sessions with us as a team, we'd move them over into either breaking news dress rehearsals or what we opened up office hours, which would be kind of like this in-between time of, okay, we're going to onboard you in a week and a half. You have all of these opportunities and time blocks available on our calendar to drop in, ask questions, troubleshoot any workflows. We just wanted to open up blocks of time on our calendar that would be accessible to editors to use without creating like something super specific that they had to do. So we had that. And then we onboarded them after that. And the onboarding process was they set up their pages and, you know, got them looking the way they wanted to. They used the tools and features that we built and we hit publish. It sounds very simple <laughs> and very streamlined, but it was a good baseline to have because of, I mean, the constant chaos of breaking news, right? We had to constantly pivot. We had to be able to constantly adapt, whether that was internal or external events happening. So we built in a lot of time buffers as well. We didn't say, okay, everything is down to the date. We usually went by the week or the month and then tried to plan down from there. Um, and I think that was really, really helpful. I learned that lesson much later after being too detailed up front and seeing all of my roadmaps and timelines go askew because of the chaos that would, that, and then breaking news that would happen or the pivots we had to make. And so I started to understand that building in those buffers that would allow us to get the time we needed with our users, but also the time for external things that might happen. And in terms of um, the migration process, how much of an overlap was there with the legacy and new system? Or once you migrated and you onboarded, you pretty much had that week and a half. What was that process like? So since we went team by team, once that team was moved over, that's where they are. That's where they were. The legacy system is still there because we still have a lot more to do on the publishing side, for example, to bring the writers over. But as far as the programming editors go, we went team by team. Once they shifted over, they did not go back. We had fallbacks in place in case they needed to, that we would be able to bring them back if something went wrong. But we fortunately never needed to do that. And then one by one, we went through the line and then homepage was our very last team, which we just finally onboarded in April. So yeah, we at phase one of work, we, we just completed and very excited about that. <laughs> Very exciting. And then the last technical point I want to touch on before we move into some career focus questions. What was the relationship like with product and engineering? I think we have a really great relationship with engineering. Paz and I work almost like that three-legged stool metaphor they use for our balanced teams. We would be nothing without our engineering partners input, insight. You know, he's extremely creative too. I think that's something unique about our team is that while we do have our areas of expertise, we lean into each other's as well. And in a way that helps us, I think, tremendously work quicker and understand each other. So I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't show a workflow or a design to a user until I heard feedback from our engineering partners. Is this feasible? Is this scalable? Is this something that makes sense within our current tech stack? And Stellar is very, is still again in its early stages. So we don't want to overcomplicate anything technically yet. So that's also feedback I'm super eager to get constantly is, is this simple enough? Is this the simplest way to solve this right now? And if it's not, how? Like we're always brainstorming together. There's always like a Slack thread or we're, we're jumping on a huddle or a, or a Zoom meeting to run through an idea. And I think it's also amazing how our engineers will, you know, they'll ping us on the side and ask us, did you think about this UX interaction? You know, and it, and it's really interesting because they, they sometimes are thinking of it when we aren't and we all move quickly. So that's how we move faster, I think, as well. And I think one, a couple of things we did to foster that relationship is we brought in and bring in our tech lead for like design discovery, like all initial product discovery, especially if it's around large feature building, you know, he, he's along for the ride the, the whole way with us. And from a product management perspective, I mean, one thing I kind of made my goal from the beginning was 
I always wanted to make sure that the three of us, no matter what conversation it was, whether it's with a stakeholder or a user or in a testing session, that the three of us were always a unified front. And that doesn't mean we don't have disagreements or like we don't, you know, debate different ways of doing things, but we are all going into conversations with the same understanding and, and a, a similar level of knowledge. And I, I think part of it is luck that maybe the three of us got to be together, but also like we take a lot of initiative and effort on our ends to continue to foster that type of working dynamic as well. I would love to talk a little bit about how you guys got into the areas that you're in. You obviously have very exciting careers and seem to have this mix of very creative backgrounds, but also working with highly technical people. And that's obviously an interesting balance. So I would love to know how you guys got into product management and specifically for breaking news. Apasana, want to start? Sure. As I think with most product managers, my entry into the field was very non-traditional. I mean, I went to school for biomedical sciences and started off the, my first part of my career as a clinical research scientist and decided I didn't want to pursue further education. And so I really wanted to break into tech. And then for 12 years, I worked in mostly search architecture and like data analytics. And my previous job, long story, very long story short, and how I got here and into product for my first product role was my boss and I used to work together. He was our VP of product at our former um, employer. And one day he reached out to me and asked me if, I, if I'd ever considered product management as a career. We were actually working on another CMS project together. Um, and he was a stakeholder on that project. And I said, no, I don't really... I don't even know what they do. I don't understand how one gets to the level of becoming a product manager. I didn't have an engineering degree. I didn't have an MBA. Um, and he said, well, you're already doing most of it. And the most important thing is the relationship building and communication aspect, because he had seen me in meetings with our stakeholders and our engineers. And long story short, he, and he recruited me and offered me a job on his team here. And at that time in my career, I was also looking for something new, um, but I had no idea what that was. And I had three different mentors of mine bring up product management all independently of each other in like the same month that was crazy. And I was like, this is the sign. I should probably really seriously look into this. And then, yeah, the opportunity kind of came, just came to me and I, I took it. And that's how I got here into product and into breaking news. Fantastic. Vanessa, before I go to you, what's been the biggest surprise for you, Upasana? In being a product manager or like... Or for breaking news, either. I The biggest surprise is, I think the, the surprise is a combination of being a product manager, specifically in my role at my team and at CNN, is the amount of freedom and autonomy that we have compared to being a product manager at other big tech companies is unmatched. Um, I, I cannot sometimes believe that we have the trust and respect to do the work we do the way that we kind of want to with the support and collaboration of so many of our peers, our bosses, our, our stakeholders. That still surprises me to this day. I constantly joke with Vanessa and even my boss of like, oh my God, we have the keys to production for CNN. This is, this is crazy. <laughs> and I think that also has enabled me to be more creative and think in ways that I I, I never have before. And that autonomy, that freedom, that trust that we have here, you know, working across an entire platform is something that most product managers don't get to do their entire career. Usually they're confined to like working on a specific feature or a specific tool. And so it's it's just, an, it's an incredible responsibility and also an incredible opportunity. Okay, that's the clip for our career site. I'm joking. <laughs> um, Vanessa. Yeah, so I ended up in product design, probably in a similar way that a lot of folks did, um, that at least have been kind of in the industry for over 10 years, because I think there's not, there's now a lot of curriculum in schools to study UX. And, um, you know, there's always there was computer science, and then kind of a combination of design while I was there. But I don't think I knew I wanted to study UX until I had studied writing. I 
was initially studying art and I have all the respect for any of you who finish an art degree that is tedious and impressive but I went through writing and I think starting my career out in visual design I felt I think I wanted more of the science part of it. I think product design is the perfect marriage of art and science where, you know, you can sh working in marketing, which while is, is measurable in so many ways, you know, you kind of create a visual design and you get kind of opinions from the marketing team. And I always had this craving to just have like prove it, you know, what, what works, what's validate this for me. And so moving into product design, you can do that constantly. It's science, you know, you're, you're messing around and you're finding out you're getting things wrong and you're failing, but you're learning. So I really had no idea how much I wanted that in my career until I had finally found a job focused on that and building things that don't exist, but with a methodology to the chaos. So that's, that's how I ended up here. <laughs> and I think CNN specifically, you know, I ended up in service design accidentally, which is, you know, working for internal users. My first experience with that was at SketchUp and then Home Depot and then CNN. And just the challenges around that, you know, it's, I, I feel like having been in service design now, you're working through so many more layers of problems in some cases than a consumer experience product, because there's the backstage, there's the front stage, there's all the systems and the information architecture. And the, the, just the end to end of that is so, I mean, we're just big nerds. We just love a challenge. And I think that's, that's really what drew me to product design and now service design. So they're stuck with me. <laughs> Fantastic. And same question. What's been the biggest surprise for you? I think kind of going off of what Paz said about the autonomy, I think through that, what surprised me is myself in that, you know, we're given all of this room to build. Our leadership is constantly asking us, what do our users need? And having been in companies before where, you know, you're being told what to do and you're not given a lot of this room to decide and feel confident in those decisions. I was surprised that I felt like I could just make a decision and I could make a call and I could, I could decide based on information what my users need and then everyone supports it because we're trusted to be those experts. And I think that has really surprised me and being in product design, it's, it's very validating on many different levels. Oh, that's wonderful. We have a lot of questions, but I have to ask the two questions we normally ask all our guests. So what is the best piece of advice or a piece of advice or feedback that has served you well during your career? And Vanessa, we can start with you. Sure. I think this piece of advice came from a friend um, and it wasn't related to UX at all, but it was kind of related to more how to tackle a lot of problems in your life when you're overwhelmed. And she said her dad used to tell her, you know, closest alligator to the boat, what is the biggest problem you need to solve? And I think working in product, you get very overwhelmed by all the feedback you're getting, all of the requests from stakeholders, the requirements from other teams, and just to kind of sit down and like, what is the biggest thing right now? And just simplify it that way. And everything else is a tomorrow problem or a, or a next week problem. And you're never really deciding that on your own either. So having pause and my engineering lead to, to decide those, what is the closest alligator to this boat right now? We're going to be okay. We got this together. And knowing that it's kind of just your backlog is always going to grow. Your discovery, what you, what you figure out that you don't know will always grow. So that's okay. We kind of have to live in this gray area and make sure that you know, we just maintain a level of calmness because it's always going to be chaos. So we just have to enjoy it as much as we can and just be curious. I love that. I'm definitely stealing that because it's alligator to the boat. Asna, what's I'm going to piggyback off of that a little bit. So I think the skill, like one of the most important skills as a product manager to have, especially in a place like the world's biggest breaking news organization, is having this sense of high agency. And that is how our team functions. I think me, Vanessa, Brian, our tech lead, like we, another reason why we all work so well together is, is because we have this trait. And what, what, what is high agency? I think it's a combination of a few different things. And one way I like to think about it is you don't have to wait until you reach the top to become a leader. Like title or no title, you have the agency to act and execute like a leader. And I think that comes with being proactive, being self-driven and motivated. Also, we don't wait for conditions to be perfect, you know, for us to take action. We are able to like identify the needs and act to fulfill those needs without 
waiting for direction from our bosses, right? Like they're there as amazing support for us, but we don't wait and twiddle our thumbs for them to tell us what to do or where to go or how to do it. And I think like all of that combined is one of the most powerful and high value skills you can have working in product and tech, especially at CNN and working in, in media in general. But also I think it's just, it sets you up to have a competitive advantage in life to like live and act like a leader. And it's also a double-edged sword sometimes because sometimes people assume you have all the answers. You know, we get pings all day and all night with questions because we don't let go. We will dig and find the answer and we never say we don't know. I might not know in that moment, but I will be the fastest one to go find the answer. That's for sure. And I think, again, like the reason why our team has been able to achieve and hit all of our milestones is because we act with that sense of agency and we function as leaders, even though we don't have the fancy titles necessarily. And I I actually want to shout out someone else on the call, Gwen Sung, who's here, who gave me that feedback at one point, you know, to believe in myself and to have that agency and to make decisions. Even if I have like the small amount, the smallest amount of information, making that decision will get you more information. I remember she went on mat leave, gave me that feedback, and then went on maternity leave and came back. She's like, who are you? You're making all these decisions and you're moving things forward. And I I really feel like that was kind of a, that was a career changer for me. No, like just having permission to decide. Wonderful. Guys, I could continue talking for another hour, but we have 10 minutes and quite a few questions. All right. The first question is, even when you get to wonderful clarity about user needs, there could be multiple UX solutions. How do you make decisions around UX? Do you have the time to vet the options and get feedback before investing in a page structure design? I think it depends on the feature, of course, but I think something that is great about our product right now is that it's out of the box. There are some defined design patterns. We don't really, we're not in the stage where we're trying to overthink what a button looks like, what a drop-down menu looks like. We're more focused on does this get the job done? And with that lens, you know, we're able to kind of filter out some solutions. We'll do this later, we'll address this later, but always kind of with that lens of does this publish? Does this get the task done? And I think also there's been situations where I've created a solution that may have been a little out of scope. Maybe there was a little too much complex design involved, or maybe it was too unique for the product at this time. Like we don't want to scale this variation of this component yet to work this way. And that's okay. We just, we all, there's a lot of negotiation happening, not just with our users who are building this with us, but with our tech leads and and pause. And I will, I'm, I'm also constantly vetting solutions with her. Is this worth the effort right now? And looking at the rest of our backlog. So it's every single day might change our priorities. And so depending on what I'm working on in discovery that week, it could change how far down a rabbit hole I go. We kind of refine our discovery backlog in a similar way that we refine our delivery. So we're always looking at what we don't know and how to bubble up the most important questions to ask. And then how much time can we really spend asking those questions? And that'll determine how long we have to test. One thing that Vanessa said, I want to just elaborate on, because I think it's really important is especially working on a platform and being a platform product manager or a platform product designer is we have to regularly evaluate our priorities. I mean, daily, weekly. Yes, we have monthly and quarterly and yearly goals, but we are looking at a much more granular level than that because we have so many stakeholders and users and that that reassessment of priorities needs to happen much more often than in like a solutions-based product world. But platform product managers and designers you know, we, we have to remain open to continue running through like detail after detail with our users and our stakeholders so that we can support them in these day-to-day tasks that they have for the product because the, the stakes are high at CNN for programming the homepage, for example, right? And like, that's why it definitely requires that granular lens. Fantastic. Thank you. And I don't know if you're able to answer this question, but I'll ask, did your development team build from the ground up or did you solely implement new features in the same environment? And would you do it the same way again? Um, it's a combination of both Can definitely touch on the strategy there. Um, so it's Stellar powered by Clay, which is an open source platform. Um, Vanessa mentioned we have a lot of on the box stuff, but 
nothing out of the box is going to work for CNN. Um, so CNN specifically, we, we, we had a great strong foundation with Clay, which is the platform that we use, or sorry, Stellar powered by Clay. And so Clay is the out of the box open, open source platform that we leverage. And then we built all of our tooling and features and functionality, much of it custom on, on, on top of that. Our next question is from Priyanka. How do you maintain prioritization focus for the project across three years in a large organization where multiple projects are in development simultaneously? Eyes on the prize. Um, I think like what that has been my anchor for sure. And I've tried to make sure to communicate that anchor with my team as well is you know, we had a very, very clear goal, right? We needed to onboard X amount of users to this platform. That's it, right? That is our one goal. And that's why also that constant reassessment of priorities is so important because you have to look when you're thinking about a year or two years and how long this might take, we didn't plan for it to be three years. You know, the pivoting we that that was necessary just due to the nature of our work prolonged it. And we figured that it would. But having that anchor and that goal, like that very clear goal, helped track towards that. And I mentioned earlier, we created a very clear order of operations, right? We knew the teams that we needed to onboard and in which order. And then from there, we created, you know, our onboarding process that was four different checkpoints. And it was just, okay, let's get to the next one. Let's get to the next one. It's like daily small momentum that kept us going. And I'm not going to lie. There were times when I thought it would never see the light of day. But once we started to really get momentum, when that first team, that second team, that third team slowly came on, the beginning was slow. And after that, it was like rapid fire. And I, I think like, it's it's kind of like a compounding effect, right? Like, like when you think about, the way investments compound. It's like all that work we did up front for two years just was like it was a domino effect in a matter of months after that. And so putting in that time up front to create a process. And, it, and the thing and the key with the process is, is that it cannot be rigid, right? It has to be flexible. So again, one of the most common, uh, maybe overhyped, but real phrases and product is stay flexible on the process but very firm on the goal, right, is being able to adapt and pivot, having some semblance of an order of operations, and that will allow you to keep tracking towards that final goal. And if we can do it, anyone can do it. Fantastic. Next question. Was there a particular tipping point where you determined you needed to rebuild your CMS? And how was that sold to leadership? That actually precedes our time here. So we probably wouldn't be the best folks to answer that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I can say, like, I started on the video side when I joined CNN, and we were a cable company that became digital. So there's a lot of legacy in our company, you know, processes, technology, et cetera. So I think um, that tipping point was just a major need and a need to shift and become more modern. We have time for two more. What was the most interesting detail that you found through UX research? And what is your favorite feature in the new CMS? My intro. Yeah, go for it. I'm gonna I'm gonna just go with the, my favorite new feature. And then Vanessa, if you want to talk about UX research and your favorite feature, I want to mention this because it's something so simple that like revolutionized our workflows. My favorite feature that we built and introduced in the last year was our cut, copy, and paste functionality because, again, speed and time is of the essence when it comes to, for example, programming the homepage, getting the content up, and hitting publish, right? And we, had a, we have a lot of other great functionality that allows you to bring those assets and that content onto the page to program. But when we decided to bring in copy and paste, first, we thought it was going to be impossible to even do. It was like a moonshot, like kind of feature that we thought maybe we could figure out. And when we finally started to dig into how it might be technically feasible and it became more and more real, we realized that it's going to change drastically the way that our editors execute their actions and their workflows because of the amount of time it saves them. And it's amazing to see that in real life, especially because we thought that that simple feature was going to be something very complicated and something that perhaps we wouldn't even be able to do. So very cool to see it in action now. 
I think as far as the UX research, that was surprising. Um, we might have talked about this already, but it's just how flexible our editors, our writing teams are. You know, maybe it's because they're coming from such a limited tool, but, you know, we're testing some workflows with them and they're like, oh, this is, we don't need all this. You know, we'll just do it this way. And I think that's just so impressive to me. I think it just speaks to how much they know their work. They know what they need and they are not willing to you know, hesitate in telling you, which is so helpful as a UX researcher and designer. And yeah, I think just their flexibility and their patience with how simple we need to start. So that has been delightfully surprising. Shout out to all of our editorial partners for that. And I think the most exciting feature coming from our old tool is probably being able to collaborate in real time with other people the same way you do in Google Docs in that way. So it's, I mean, that's a game changer in the news. They're able to communicate within the tool rather than outside of it now. Brilliant. And that nicely takes us to our final question. How do you envision technology will continue to influence your content management platform and overall work that we do? For example, automation, AI, ML. That's a good question. I think we go back to the basics when it comes to thinking about trends in technology. And that basic is what problem are we actually solving? Are we doing it just to do it? Is it because editorial is like, AI is cool, which they don't say to us, but as an example, if that's something they said, you know, we don't just go open up that can of worms. It's always coming back to what is the problem? Why is the problem a problem in the first place? And then finally we get into how might we solve it? So that to us precedes anything around what is the latest trend or like doing it to do it because it's a cool feature. Um, Vanessa, anything to add? I think that is probably the best answer that any one of us could have given. <laughs> Always focusing on the problem is how I prefer to work. So thank you for saying that, Klaus. Brilliant. Well, guys, we are at time. Thank you both so much for such a great conversation. I certainly learned a lot. Um, I hope our audience found it valuable. I think they did based on the comments. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, everyone, we hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we have. If you did, please go ahead and rate and review, which will allow other women in our space to find this great content. And of course, like and subscribe. If you are interested in hearing more about careers at WBD, please check us out at careers.wbd.com. All right, see you next time.